Last time we were together, we saw an uh, overview of the danger of homosexuality, and particularly the, uh, what, what I termed militant or aggressive um, homosexuality and its contribution to the moral catastrophe or decline that we find existing in our country today. There are uh, theories and uh, opinions and arguments that abound, and really the only hope that we have in understanding and trying to sort it all out is to uh, turn to the Bible. Um, because it's in this particular session that we're going to deal with specifically what the Bible says about homosexuality. Uh, everyone has an opinion. There's a whole bunch of theories. There's a whole bunch of, of uh, arguments that we find in society today. But really what we need is just some clear-cut answers and definitive answers on what the Bible actually says about homosexuality. What's of particular interest to me as we consider the biblical view is the desire on the part of some of the homosexual community to be accepted within the mainstream of the uh, Judeo-Christian tradition. And uh, that is of particular interest, and you'll see as we go through why that's the case. Affirmation, glad, honesty, integrity, and dignity. They sound like five points that you'd pick up at some motivational seminar on positive thinking. The problem is that they're names of gay groups who are lobbying within denominations for acceptance, for approval, and for sanction. And uh, Affirmation is a Methodist group. Glad is with the Disciples of Christ. Honesty is trying to get in with Southern Baptists. And Integrity is the Episcopalian group. In addition to these, other gay organizations are American Baptists Concerned, the Brethren, the, uh, Brethren and Mennonite Council for Lesbian and Gay Concerns, the Presbyterians for Lesbian and Gay Concerns, the Seventh-day Adventist group by the name of Kinship, the United Church Coalition for Lesbian and Gay Concerns, which is tied up with the United Church of Christ. The Catholics have two groups that are trying to infiltrate that particular uh, denomination, and that is Dignity and the Catholic Coalition for Gay Civil Rights. And Axios is the gay group in the Greek Orthodox Church. In addition to these are independent groups working to get into non-denominational evangelical and charismatic churches, such groups as Evangelicals Concerned, Evangelicals Together, Lambda Christian Fellowship, and the National Gay Pentecostal Alliance. There is also the first gay denomination, which is the Metropolitan Community Church, which is seeking to join the World Council of Churches. I'd like to make a suggestion to all of these groups. I'd like to suggest that they all get together and rent a little small banquet room in some hotel because they don't really need a real big room because there's not that many number in, in number and just get a small banquet room together and just kind of join forces and to come up with one name and I, and I think that I've got a name I'd like to suggest and, and the name would be apostasy why don't you just call yourselves apostasy the American College Dictionary defines apostasy as total desertion or departure from one's principles party or cause defection and revolt, a departure from the faith. The Oxford English Dictionary defines apostasy as the abandonment or renunciation of one's religious faith or moral allegiance. That pretty much sums it all up. And uh, when you stop and think about it, uh, here's an article in Christianity Today. It was entitled, Homosexuality Debate Strains Campus Harmony, Homosexuals at Christian College Press for Acceptance. The lead paragraph of the story was quite revealing, and this is what it had to say. Christian college campuses across the country have become the setting for an intense struggle over homosexuality. 
involving free speech rights, academic freedom, and theological beliefs. The article reported the debate that's taking place at Calvin College, Eastern College, and Gordon College concerning homosexuality. According to the article, quote, four students from Eastern attended the gay march on Washington in April with a banner proclaiming Christian, gay, and proud Eastern College gay and lesbian community. The question that I have as we go through this is, what is there to debate? You know, what's, what's the issue here? If you take a high view of Scripture, there is nothing to debate. But the problem is, Dr. Stanton Jones of Wheaton College is exactly right when he says the reason homosexuality is an important issue is that what the Bible treats as an, act, as an isolated act to be condemned, people of the same gender having sex, our society treats as a fundamental element of personal identity. He goes on to say that, that uh, every time homosexual practice is mentioned in the scriptures, it is condemned. The second statement that he makes is, there are only two ways one can neutralize the biblical witness against homosexual behavior. One, by either gross interpretation of scripture, or two, by moving away from what he calls a high view of scripture. However, there was a recent article in the Orange County Register that I want you to be aware of because it was entitled, What Does the Bible Say? It was like, what does it really say? And those who are in favor of homosexuality, this is what they say. The Bible is complex and must constantly be reinterpreted. Fewer than a dozen verses mention sexual activity between men. It's not a big concern in the Bible. The code of law in Leviticus, which forbids sex between men, was intended for ancient Hebrews and no longer applies today. At Sodom and Gomorrah, God was angry because the men of Sodom had tried to rape his two angelic messengers. There is no record of God destroying anyone because of homosexuality. And it's also incorrect, according to their view, to translate the Greek words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.9 or 1 Timothy 1.10 to condemn all homosexuals. Paul probably was referring to sex between men and boys or of male prostitution. Well, you know what? Probably the best way to eliminate all the guesswork and to set the record straight is, you know, this is an amazing thing, and I find this to be so helpful anytime a subject comes up. But, you know, like one of the ways that, that I learn what the Bible has to say about any subject is, guess what you do? Oh, you, you read it. Oh, that's right. You read it. Now, isn't that fascinating? It's quite a, it's a really an important first step, I may add. But uh, it's something that we need to understand. The only way that anyone will find out what the Bible has to say about anything is pick it up and read it. The problem is so many of us in our culture today would rather read a synopsis in a newspaper that has a half a paragraph and think that somebody actually spent time and researched it and studied it and understood it. The so-called expert. Oh, this is what they say. That must be true. Well, gee, you know what? If you got your Bibles, just turn to Genesis chapter 18. We'll start there and we'll read what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. And it's a fascinating and uh, quite an eye-opening experience to read what the Bible actually has to say about anything. Genesis chapter 18, we'll start there with verse 16, and then we'll go into uh, chapter 19. Genesis chapter 18, starting at verse 16. It says, Then the men rose up from there and looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? 
since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the two men, or the men, turned away from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. What takes place after this is an interesting um, uh, dialogue between God and Abraham as to the fate of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham, and God wanted Abraham to understand justice and righteousness and what it meant to do right and wrong before God. And he also, because he was a friend of God, John 15 says that Jesus discloses all things because he, he is a friend of ours. And Abraham was called a friend of God. And so God wanted Abraham to know what he was about to do and the reasons that he was about to do what he was going to do. And so this debate or dialogue takes place between God and Abraham. And Abraham saying, well, you're not going to destroy these cities if there are 50 righteous people there, are you? And God says, no, I won't do that. He said, 45. No, 40. And he started to negotiate back and forth. And uh, finally, he got down to 10, and he kind of left it at that. And God says, I won't destroy it if there's 10 righteous people left in any of these cities. And he left it at that. So as we pick up in chapter 19 and verse 1, we find out what's taken place at this point. It says, now the two angels, and the two men who are referenced in chapter 18 were angels. And these angels were sent by God to judge the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But they were also sent to protect Lot and his family because of Abraham. God had determined that he would protect Lot's family and take care of them. And the Bible tells us in Second Peter that Lot was righteous. And so he went down and the angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, now please, or behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go your way. They said, however, no, we will spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all of the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot, and they said to him, Where are the men who came to your house tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Or some texts say that we may know them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him. And he said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with men, with a man. But please let me bring them to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. When the men said to Lot, Whom else have you here, a son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. 
For we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who, who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But his sons-in-law, to them it appeared to his sons-in-law that he was jesting or joking. And when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the man seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his daughter, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. And it came about when they had brought them outside that one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. But Lot said to them, O oh, no, my lords, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest a disaster overtake me and I die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it's small, so please let me escape there, that my life may be saved. And he said to him, Behold, I grant you your this request also, not to overthrow the town which you have spoken. Hurry and escape, for there I cannot do anything until you arrive. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar, and the Lord then rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, smoke of the land ascending like the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about, when God had destroyed the cities of the valley, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. The issue of Sodom and Gomorrah is a very serious one as it relates to the beliefs and practices of homosexuals because they continue to insist that the sin that brought about the destruction of these cities was a lack of hospitality or possibly rape, but certainly not homosexuality. There are a lot of lessons that we can learn from what we see happening in this particular account. Many of them have to do with Lot's lifestyle and what he was doing in a city that was so wicked before God. The Bible says that Lot sat out in the gate as a judge of the city. He was a judge of the people. That Lot, according to Second Peter, was a righteous man who knew what was right and wrong before God. He knew righteousness, he knew justice, and yet at the same time he had grown to tolerate certain behavior as if it, was, it wasn't as serious as he thought it was or as God thought it was. And so as Lot was sitting here judging these, the, the, the people and other, uh, other matters of life, there was an interesting thing that, that you've got to notice about Lot. He was like the consummate politician. There are certain things that he still knew where the line was, and he recognizes the behavior of the people that came to his home that night because when they came to the door and said, we want to have relations with these men or we want to know these men, Lot went outside, shut the door behind them to protect them, and he said to them, don't do this because this is wicked. He knew what they were about to do or what they wanted to do was wicked. He still understood evil. He understood good. He understood justice. He understood righteousness. But he accommodated so many things in his life that it began to get so watered down and his effectiveness for God had gotten so neutralized that even his sons-in-law, who were about to marry his daughters, thought he was kidding when he said, God's going to destroy this place because of the wickedness that's found in these cities. They thought he was joking. They didn't even take him serious. 
A lot of lessons we can learn about Lot. There's a lot of lessons we can learn about the compassion of God also. And yet as we go through this, what I want to concentrate on is the whole practice or the whole behavior of, of, of homosexuality because no matter what anybody tries to say, the text clearly indicates that it was the sin, homosexuality was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah that brought about its destruction. In Genesis 18.20, God had said the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous. You know, it's really important to understand sometimes that God calls certain behavior sin. He didn't say, and their alternative lifestyle is so grievous. Or the way they want to live is different than the way I want them to live. He called it the way it was. He said their sin is so grievous. Lot knew that it was grievous. He knew what they did was wicked. And in fact, when they came to town, the angels or the men said to, said to uh, Lot, we'll just sleep out here in the square tonight. We'll sleep outdoors under the stars. And Lot's like, are you nuts? You must be from out of town. You don't sleep outside at night, not in our cities. Gee, you know what? Lot's changed, huh? <laughs> not Lot. A lot has changed, huh? But isn't it? I mean, it's amazing. You don't stay outside. You don't stay outdoors at night. Why don't you come on home in our house? And I hope you never know why you have to. But I got a funny feeling that you will. It's interesting because as you look at all of this, you know, it would have cost him his life. His compromise to evil in his culture and his society would have cost him his life if it wasn't for the compassion of God. There are many lessons we can learn. However, I'd like to focus on this passage and what it says specifically about homosexuality and some of the viewpoints of homosexuals concerning this passage. An interesting viewpoint of the passage is given by a gentleman named Robert Arthur, who left the heterosexual lifestyle in marriage and became a committed homosexual and a pastor in the Universal Fellowship of Metropolitan Community Churches. There's a really interesting thing here I want to point out because in all the research that I've done and all the, all the studies and the different people that, that have been interviewed who have become committed homosexuals, one thing that stands out in my mind and it just kind of makes me ask the question, that's really interesting. Because how committed was he to his marriage, to his children, to the high viewpoint that God has on marriage and family, to the high viewpoint that God has on integrity and being a man of our word and keeping commitments and promises that we make? It's just fascinating to me that so many homosexuals have left their wife and their children to become committed homosexuals. And yet they say they have a high view of Scripture. And I just wonder how that contradiction, how that contradiction exists and how they get around it. How do you leave your, leave your wife and your kids and your commitments that you make and say that you have a high viewpoint of Scripture and what the Bible teaches about marriage and family? I don't understand that. He also claims to be a committed, he committed to a conservative theological viewpoint and states that he believes in the verbal inspiration of the Bible in the original languages. He believes, he says, in the authority and the infallibility of the Bible, then everything in it is completely accurate and definitely true. But this is what he writes in a little booklet entitled Homosexuality and the Conservative Christian. It was published in 1982 by STI Publications in Los Angeles. This is what he writes. 
Now, of course, there are those who would lift the 19th chapter out of context and try to prove that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of their rampant homosexuality. But we can see from the context that well before their destruction and this attempted rape, that God had already pronounced their judgment to Abraham. He goes on to argue that the sin of Sodom involved the attempt on the part of human beings to rape the angelic visitors. He says, quote, What we are reading, we are not reading of homosexuality, but of the mixing of two distinct orders of creation, humans and angels. He argues that the sin was rape, not homosexuality. Now, would you stop and please think with me just for a minute? All right? His argument was God had already pronounced their judgment to Abraham before the events that took place in Genesis chapter 19, which is true, because in Genesis 18, 20, it says the Lord said the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, their sin is so grievous, he sent the angels to warn Lot and then to destroy, God destroy the city. You follow this? Now stop and think for a second. If he's saying that it was impossible that it was the sin of homosexuality, it was also impossible that it was the sin of rape. Because God had already judged them before the attempted rape took place. So if you stop and think about all of this, the argument doesn't wash. It doesn't make any sense. Because the context clearly speaks for itself. The point that he's making is misleading. It's quite obvious whatever the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was was so grievous before God because we see it in Genesis 18.20 that it brought about these cities, the, the destruction of the cities and it was obviously not dependent upon anything that ever happened in Genesis 19 because God knew what was going on in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19 gives us insight as to what the total outrage was that was taking place. It helps us to understand what God had already known because God already pronounced judgment on the city in Genesis 18. God knew what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah and he pronounced his judgment and was going to destroy it. We see insight in Genesis 19 as to the total depravity that had taken place in their culture. We also need to understand something. When these men came to the house, they said in verse 5, Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Or in other translations it says, so that we may know them. There is no way to get around what they wanted to do. Lot understood it and called it wickedness. He also offered up his daughters as a sacrifice, so to speak, to to get the men out of his household so they did not rape and, and, and sodomize the, the guys who were visiting with him. Lot knew they wanted to have sex with these men. The Bible teaches they wanted to have sex with these men. And it clearly teaches because the words are the same that are used all throughout the book of Genesis and all throughout the Old Testament. The Hebrew word yada in Genesis 19, 5 and 8 is translated to know. The common word is used to indicate sexual relationship. In Genesis 4, 1, Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. In Genesis 4:17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. Verse 25, Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and named him Seth. Genesis 24:16 says of Rebekah, who became the wife of Isaac. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. She had known no man. You follow this? Lot said the same of his daughters, that they knew no men. They didn't get together. They didn't want to get to meet these guys and find out where they were from and what's going on and how business is and how their travel was and how their journey was. That wasn't, they didn't want to get, can we get to know you a little better? That's not what they were doing. And the Bible clearly teaches it. All you have to do is read the text. All you got to do is read it. 
When I became a Christian in 1978, I remember sitting down very vividly and, and, and setting out to read through the Bible in a year. I began to read through the book of Genesis, and I came across this passage on Sodom and Gomorrah. And I, was, I, I remember being astounded to read about how perverted a whole society had become. Individuals, you can understand. But a whole society, cities of people had become so perverted that what they did was an abomination before God. What their sin was was so grievous and their outcry was, was, was so offensive to God that he said, I'm sick of this and I'm not putting up with it anymore. And as I was reading through it, I thought, it doesn't even seem real that societies could become so abominable. But regretfully, the long, longer that I live and the more that I study history and the longer that we live and we see history in the making, we begin to realize how easy it is to understand how perverted a society can become. Now, not everybody in a society endorses certain behavior. Not everybody in this country endorsed slavery, and yet it existed, and it was an atrocity to mankind. Not everybody agreed with it, but the problem was the ones who didn't agree with it didn't say anything about it. Not everybody agreed with Hitler and the Holocaust in the extermination of the Jewish people. Not everybody in Germany agreed with it, but the ones that disagreed with it didn't stand out, and they weren't counted, and the ones that were, were executed. Regimes like Idi Amin in Uganda, apartheid in South Africa, Papa Doc Duvalier in Haiti, so-called ethnic cleansing that's taken place in countries in Europe today. Now, you see, it's not hard for me to understand how perverted a society can become. September 19th of this past year in San Francisco, members of Hamilton Square Baptist Church in San Francisco were attending an evening service when they were attacked viciously by a gay activist group, ACT UP and Queer Nation. The church was surrounded by more than 100 rioters who screamed obscenities and roughed up parishioners who were attempting to attend the services. When the protesters saw boys and girls inside the church, they shouted, quote, We want your children. Give us your children. A nine-year-old boy cried hysterically, They're after me. They want me. The pastor begged for additional police support, but his request was denied, and he was told by the police department, you must understand, this is San Francisco, and no arrests were made. Last spring, 300,000 homosexuals, lesbians, marched in Washington, D.C., shouting out, we're dykes, we're out, we're out for power, as reported by the Washington Post. In Marietta, Georgia, it, it, which is basically a family-oriented community. We have friends who live in, in this particular area, and uh, they, they adopted a passage of legislation in Cobb, Cobb County declaring homosexuality, quote, incompatible with community standards. Homosexual groups then took over the park, which is usually a haven for family, and held what they called a queer family picnic. What's sad is, you know, we've got friends who live near that area. And these are men and women, the couples who love Jesus Christ and are trying to raise their children in homes where the scriptures are central. But our friends are now having to protect the well-being of their children. The article goes on to say that, you know what, the same battles are unfolding in Idaho, Maine, Oregon, Florida, Michigan, Missouri, and Washington. We saw last week when I talked about federal mediators being sent to Mississippi. Men and women were, you know, what we're witnessing today is precisely what is described in Genesis 18 and Genesis 19. Homosexuality is not an alternative lifestyle, but it is a sin that's so grievous before God that it brought about their destruction. And we need to understand that. Steve Farrar in his book, Standing Tall, writes this. When the battle for gay rights comes to your community, I suggest that you be there. This is the only Christian thing for a man to do. 
This is a battle over the children. The homosexual militants play hardball. They loudly condemn the intolerance and hate tactics of those who oppose them, yet they are well known for their own confrontational tactics of interrupting church services and threatening those who dare to stand publicly against them. There is no question that historically speaking, the understanding of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was the sin of homosexuality. Even our sodomy laws today, the 13 original colonies ratified and adopted laws against sodomy. Sodomy pertains to the ancient biblical city of Sodom. We need to understand that. The attempt by gay proponents to deny the obvious point of the Bible's teaching about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah shows why so many people in our society today are trying to eliminate the biblical morality from public life. Because what the Bible says is very, very clear. There's no way you can get around it. And it doesn't stop there. Number two, the sin of homosexuality was also, according to the scripture, punishable by death. Now, out of fairness, we need to point out that under the Mosaic law, the death penalty was also applied to premeditated murder, incest, rape, prostitution, adultery, premarital sex with an engaged virgin, bestiality, and rebellion against parents. So there were a lot of things in this particular category that were worthy of death, according to the Bible. But what we also must understand is that though we don't apply these same strong penalties today, the character of God has not changed. God is not like man that he should lie, nor that he should change his mind in any of these areas. God felt the same about homosexuality then as he does today. Thank God that he doesn't apply the same penalty today because the purpose of the law, according to Jesus, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law or to say that it wasn't right or that it wasn't any good or that it doesn't apply, but what I came to do was fulfill the law. The law is a tutor or a teacher that leads us to Jesus, and the whole purpose that we're led to Christ is because we need a Savior. The law taught all of us and continues to teach us that there are none righteous, no, not one. There's nothing that we can do to enter into heaven. We're not deserving of it. We're not worthy of it. And what the law helps us to understand is, you know what? We're, 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 we're offensive to God in one area of the law. We're guilty by all of it. And so what the law was to do was to help every one of us see that we need a Savior. Well, thank God that he provided one in the person of Jesus Christ. And that as we turn to him, all of our sins are forgiven, not only now, but for all of eternity. But the important thing that we need to understand is, is that there's this concept called repentance that doesn't seem to be part of our culture today. A concept called confession, agreeing with God that what he says about certain things is right. Repentance is, I agree with God, what he says is right, and now I will repent or turn from it and stop doing it. And so as we look at this whole subject of homosexuality, we need to understand that God still feels the same way today as he did then. It was a sin that was punishable by death. Leviticus 18.22 says, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. It is detestable, or, and it's an abomination before God. In Leviticus 18.29, which is on the overhead, says, For whoever commits any of these abominations, and one of them is homosexuality, the persons who commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Leviticus 20.13 says, If a man lies with a woman, if a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable, they must be put to death, and their blood will be on their own hand, heads. Interesting. There's this whole idea that God has, and I don't know where he comes up with this notion, but that he holds us responsible for our own choices. 
Now, isn't that a fascinating concept? God holds you and me responsible for what we choose to do. And there's a certain sense of accountability that all of us need to understand. So not only is it a sin that brought about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, homosexuality was a sin that was, according to the Bible, punishable by death. And the third thing that I want to talk about in this particular session is that it is not natural. Homosexuality is not natural. It's an example of degrading passion. And Romans also reiterates what the Old Testament teaches, and that is that it is a sin that is worthy of death. Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 26 and through 32, we read this. But because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations for, with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. The Bible says because of this. Because of what? Well, you need to read the text prior to that. Read it. Read Romans 1. The text says very specifically because people began to put God second or third or last in their life and began to put themselves first. People began to serve themselves rather than to serve God. People began to worship themselves and their own behavior and their own needs and all the things that we, you know, dialogue and justify and rationalize rather than keeping God preeminent in everything that we do. Everything got upside down. Everything got backwards. What God said was right, man said it wasn't right. It wasn't wrong anymore. That it was wrong. You know, God says it's not wrong. We say it's right. God says that it's right. We say that it's wrong. Everything is backwards. And because of that, God says, you know what? I'm just turning you over. And he says, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness and evil and greed and depravity. They are full of envy and murder and strife, deceit and malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous degree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Does it remind you of Genesis 18 and 19? It's total depravity. Look at the words that he uses. It's unnatural. Homosexuality is unnatural. There's no way you can get around it. It's unnatural. The word literally means it's against nature or against the plan of God. He says it's shameful, without shape or plan. It doesn't have any plan. It has no future. There's nowhere to go. If every person on the face of the earth adopted a homosexual lifestyle, it would be the end of mankind. There is no plan. There is no hope. There is no future. That's it. It's over. But of course, homosexuals don't want everybody to become homosexual. Because where are they going to get the next person? I want to talk about that. It's perversion, it's lustful, it's confused, it's evil, it's wrong, it's senseless, it's ruthless, it's faithless, it's heartless. It leads to everything, all the way including murder. And the men of Sodom would have murdered Lot if the angels had not confused them to the point where they couldn't get in the house. They wanted to kill him for taking a stand against them. It's total depravity. And they experience in themselves the due consequences for their actions. And we'll talk more about that in a second. It is extremely important at this point to help us understand how serious a matter that this is. Homosexuals do not want straight America, what they call straight America, to hear what I'm about to share. In fact, homosexuals want to be viewed as a persecuted minority. We saw that last time. And this is by design. And in a moment, you'll see why that's exactly why it is. 
and why it's so important a strategy. Let me give you four points according to Marshall Kirk and Erastes Pill, who published an article in a homosexual magazine called Guide in November 1987. The article was entitled, The Overhauling of Straight America, and it outlines a strategy by which homosexuals can best implement their agenda. Here's the four points that they make. Number one, desensitization. desensitization. To desensitize the public is to help it view homosexuality with indifference instead of keen emotion. You know what it is? It's to say, like Lot, I'll accommodate it as long as it doesn't cross a certain line. You do your thing, I'll do my thing, we're all different, I'll be tolerant, I'll be open-minded, it's no big deal, I don't agree with you, but everyone is different, Every, to each his own, we all have our own bag, whatever floats, floats your boat, whatever, you know, that type of thing. That's the kind of attitude, that indifference. Don't be emotional about it, just be indifferent. Number two, the agenda is portray gays as victims, not as aggressive challengers. In any campaign to win over the public, gays must be cast as victims in need of protection so that straights will be inclined by reflex to assume the role of protector. In other words, make homosexuals a minority. And we'll all stand up and protect them. Because why? Because we have been so guilty in our past history in this country of not protecting minorities because we've been so racial and prejudiced against a person because of the color of their skin that now everybody tries to jump into the minority bandwagon and the rest of us, all because of guilt of our past and how we've treated one another, jump up and say, yeah, they're a minority, let's protect them. But they're not a minority, not according to the definition that the Bible gives. God determines race. Mankind is held responsible for behavior. Let's not ever forget homosexuality is a behavior. It is not status. Number three, give the protectors a just cause. Our campaign should not demand direct support for homosexual practices, but instead make anti-discrimination its theme. Number four, make the victimizers look bad. To be blunt, they must be vilified. The public should be shown images of ranting homophobes whose secondary traits disgust middle America. These images might include the Ku Klux Klan demanding that gays be burned alive or castrated. That's what the media needs to show. See, because in anybody, and think about it, that's what the media does anyway. When was the last time you read an article from a conservative Judeo-Christian point of view that articulates the whole opposition to the behavior of homosexuality? When was the last time you saw somebody interviewed on TV who didn't come off looking like the biggest wacko right-wing fundamentalist that didn't make any sense at all and that they hated everybody and they were bigoted and they were intolerant and that's exactly why and that's exactly what the media tries to project. When was the last time you saw someone who could articulate the biblical position in opposition to homosexuality? You, you haven't seen it and I haven't seen it either. That's why we need to be careful that we can continue to teach the word of God in church because it's the only place you're going to hear the truth. And we need to understand that, and we need to be aware of it, and that's why I'm sorry if some of these things offend some of you, but I'm telling you right now, you are not going to hear what I'm about to share with you anywhere else, and the purpose and the reason that I'm doing it is because I want you to hear the truth so that you can respond to it accordingly. This strategy is important because the following is a description of homosexual behavior. It's, you tell me whether it's natural or unnatural. You tell me whether it's degrading or not. Dr. Stanley Monteith reports the following information about homosexual behavior. It's cited by the Gay Agenda in a videotape entitled The Report. He writes this, 100% of homosexuals engage in fellatio, which is either insertive or receptive oral sex. 93% engage in rectal sex or anal intercourse. 92% are active in what's called rimming, 
which is the licking with the tongue in and around the partner's anus and inserting the tongue into the same. The doctor points out that with such behavior, the ingestion of some fecal matter is inevitable. 47% of homosexuals practice what they call fisting, which is taking the hand and arm and inserting it into another person's rectum. Recently, a brochure, now listen to this, recently a brochure was handed out in the New York City School District to high school students. The brochure graphically illustrated and informed students on how to use latex gloves when fisting. It said, don't insert the fist past the length of the glove. I guess this is safe sex. 29% participate in golden showers, where one person lies on the floor and other men urinate on them. 17% are involved in scatting, which is the eating of human feces, or the smearing of human feces over one another. I won't even get into the sadomasochistic things that, that, are, uh, that are also uh, studies that are truthful, where it says 37% of homosexuals engage in that type of behavior. But we need to point out the average homosexual has 20 to 106 partners each year. 28% of homosexuals have committed sodomy with over 1,000 men. Sound like... Genesis 18 and 19, an insatiable lust that just cannot be satisfied. Now, when you read these facts, is it any wonder the average homosexual is eight times more likely to contract hepatitis, 14 times more likely to get syphilis, and 5,000 times more likely to contract AIDS than a heterosexual man? They receive them themselves the due penalty for their actions. Now, perhaps, maybe we can understand why the gay agenda is to make sure the public isn't shocked and repelled by premature exposure to homosexual behavior. Let me, te- let me ask you this. Do you think if everyone in our country knew these facts, that there'd be any debate on whether a gay counselor should be allowed in the Boy Scouts? Do you think if you knew what was going on here, that you would allow the gay alternative lifestyle to be taught as part of the sex education curriculum in your child's high school? How about elementary school? The city of San Francisco allocated $124,000 last year to allow gay groups to go into elementary schools to teach them homosexuality to 11-year-old girls. If that doesn't bother you, maybe this will. 30% of convicted male child molesters have committed homosexual acts, and at least 91% of those who molested non-familial boys admitted to no sexual contact ever in their lives except with homosexuals. In France, 129 convicted gays said they had contact with a total of 11,007 boys, which is an average of 85 per man. Of 400 consecutive Australian cases of molestation, 64% of those assaults were committed by homosexuals. Dr. Paul Cameron writes in his booklet, Study after nationwide study has yielded estimates of male homosexuality that range between 1% and 3%. The proportion of lesbians in these studies is almost always lower, usually half of that of gays. So overall, perhaps, perhaps... 2% of adults regularly engage in homosexuality, yet they account for between 20 to 40% of all molestation of children. There is something terribly wrong with that 1 to 2%. And it's not to be taken lightly. The statistics go on and on. If 2% of the population is responsible for 20 to 40% of something as socially and personally troubling as child molestation, something must be desperately wrong with those 2%. 
which leads to organizations like the North American Man-Boy Love Association. Their philosophy takes homosexuality to its logical conclusion. If there is no such thing as perversion, and if sex is good, the exercise of the merely physical appetite, then why should children deny the same good? This is what their pamphlet reads. Nambla takes the view that sex is good, that homosexuality is good, not only for adults, but for young people as well. We support all consensual sexual relationships regardless of age. As long as the relationship is mutually pleasurable and no one's rights are violated. See, you got all that legal jargon nonsense in everything that they write. Sex should be no one else's business. And parents, isn't it exactly what's, what's trying to be done in our relationship with our children and the schools that they go to? Where they can hand out or give out condoms or birth control without you as a parent knowing what's going on with your child? That your child can go and have an abortion without parental consent? This is exactly the kind of nonsense, and this is how it's carried to its furthest extreme. They go on and they write, sexual liberation cannot be achieved without the liberation of our children. This means many things. Children need to gain control over their lives, a control which they are denied on all sides. They need to break the yoke of protection which alienates them from themselves, a protection imposed on them by adults, their family, the schools, the state, and prevailing sexual and social mores. There is no age at which a person becomes capable of consenting to sex. The age of sexual consent is just one of many ways in which adults impose their system of control on their children. Those statements come from the pit of hell. That's where they come from. And let me tell you something. I want to promote something next week called Promise Keepers, and I'm going to talk right to the men right now. This battle is a battle that needs to be fought by men. This is not a battle where we shove our women out to the front. This is a battle where men take leadership and say, I will not allow this to happen to my children. This is a battle for our children. This is a battle for our culture and for our society. And it is not a battle that a man is too busy in his job to stand up and do the things that need to be done. Because you and I can become just as guilty as Lot, complacent and apathetic to the point of indifference and not even know what's going on around us because, hey, everybody does their own thing. I want to be considered tolerant. I want to be considered open-minded. Hey, as long as you don't cross this line, I won't say anything to you. And that's nonsense because sin is not content to stay within any boundaries that we try to lay out. It's not content to say, I'm just going to have this little piece over here. It's not content. Sin is bent, hell-bent on destruction of people's lives and society as a whole. You can't contain sin. You can't say, be over there in your little corner and don't bother us. Because evidence throughout our culture and society in the last 30 years indicate the opposite is true. The homosexual agenda is not content on just their little piece of the world. They want everything and they want it all. Why? Because it's a perversion that's insatiable and it can't be stopped other than by God's people standing up and standing firm for what God says is right and wrong. We need a high view of Scripture again. Let me, clo let me, close, with, let me close with this quote that kind of summarizes everything I was trying to get across this morning. Susan Fields, who is a columnist for the LA Times Syndicate, she writes this observation about the Assistant Secretary of Housing and Urban Development who has been open, open and very open and has an in-your-face attitude about her lesbianism, and we're talking about Actenberg. This is what she writes. Forget what you may think about lesbianism. Forget whether you care if Heather has two mommies. Forget all the intellectual issues that define this debate. But let me ask you this question. 
What do you think about two women riding in convertible with the top down, kissing each other passionately on the mouth, while the seven-year-old son of one of them sits in the back seat watching in bewilderment? What do you think when you see that the car carries a banner that says, Celebrating Family Values? How do you feel that one of these women was confirmed by the Senate as an assistant secretary of the Department of Housing and Urban Development? Senator Barbara Boxer, the California Democrat who led the floor fight for confirmation of Roberta Ackenberg, one of the heavy kissers, defended her because she thinks public policy qualifications should be judged as different from homosexual lifestyle. Fair enough, but don't character and moral issues make up a person's qualifications too? The kissers are from a 1992 video of the San Francisco Gay Pride Parade. Another scene portrayed a white-haired god in anal intercourse with Uncle Sam. Their, side read, their sign reads, One Nation Under God. Our society has moved from taking pride in moral righteousness to a disdain for anyone who espouses virtue. In 40 years, homosexuals have moved from rhetoric calling for them to blend into society to become a part of the power structure to uncompromising visibility and an in-your-face public sexuality. It's precisely such ob observations that cause concern about Roberta Ackenberg's prominence and her power. As a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, she voted to bar the Boy Scouts from holding meetings of their troops in public schools because they have refused to allow gays in their group. Her confirmation has been hailed as a breakthrough, the highest federal appointment for a lesbian activist. Do we care if her attitude is in your face? What do you think about what you've heard? I hope that you're outraged by it. I hope it disgusts you. I hope it gets you sick to your stomach. Because if it doesn't, then step one has already taken place. You're apathetic and you're indifferent. It doesn't even bother you. You don't even blink an eye at it. I've talked to many men who this kind of their attitude is, oh, it's not that big a deal. Then what is? What is a big deal? I think it's time to say loudly and clearly as we close this session that homosexuality and out of fairness, as with every other sin, is wrong not because we agree that it's wrong, not because we may find it personally revolting or disgusting, nor because it undermines the very foundation of society, the family, nor because of the physical consequences of the actions, which we'll talk about when we get to sexual disease. No, homosexuality, along with every other sin mentioned in the Bible, is wrong because God says it's wrong. While we may want a list of 50 reasons why something is wrong, the bottom line is it's wrong because God is God. He's in control. He's the boss. He calls the shots. He determines what is right behavior and what is wrong behavior. And it is to him that all human beings must one day give an account. It is wrong whether you agree that it's wrong or not. It is wrong whether you understand why it's wrong or you don't understand. It is wrong because God clearly teaches in the Word of God that it's wrong. And if you have a high view of Scripture, there's no way you can get around that. So let us not deceive ourselves. God is not mocked by your sinful acts, whether homosexuality or any other sin that you've got going on in your life. God is not mocked by any of it. What we sow will also reap. That's why King David said this, and we'll sum it all up. Thy word, O God, I have hidden my heart so that I don't sin against you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to be together. God, we just pray that we would continue to have a high view of Scripture, that we would understand clearly what you teach in your word. 
God, help us to understand that things are wrong because you say that they're wrong. Help us to be obedient as we learn the difference between right or wrong. Help us when we're wrong in an area of our life to confess it, agree with you that what we're doing is wrong, to repent and to turn from it. And we just praise you and thank you for your word, for your grace, for your love, and for your compassion for all sinners, that we could all turn to Jesus Christ for the hope for not only now, but all of eternity. And we thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Um, now, um, the last time we got together, we, uh, well, actually, today we'll conclude our study of, of homosexuality and uh, particularly the, what the Bible has to say, what the Bible says specifically about homosexuality. Now, contrary to what many people would have us believe, particularly those in the homosexual community, the Bible does have, say, does have a lot to say about homosexuality. And in fact, just as a matter of quick review, we saw that the first thing that the Bible says is that it was a sin, homosexuality was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah that brought about its destruction. In Genesis 18.20 we read, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, it's important to understand the sin is a specific sin that's mentioned. There's a definite article that precedes it, meaning that it was a specific sin. It wasn't the sins of hospitality, inhospitality, the sins of rape. It wasn't anything other than one particular thing. And we went into great detail last week at what Genesis 19 has to say. Lot understood that the men of the city had come to his house to have sex with the uh, two visitors who God had sent who were angels and they looked as men and so the men of the city of Sodom were confused about their identity and wanted to come and have sex with them. Lot knew that, understood that and he said that what you want to do is exceedingly wicked. Don't do this. But they continue to press up against him and they try to, try to break into his house. And as a, as a token or an offering or some way to, get them to, to keep them from doing what they're going to do, Lot offered his daughters. And uh, he understood very clearly what their intent was, and so does God. He understood very clearly as well. Contrary to those in the homosexual community that would teach us otherwise, the Bible clearly condemns homosexual behavior. We saw that in this particular point, and we also saw, number two, is that homosexuality is a sin that was punishable by death. According to the law in Leviticus 18.22, the Bible says, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman, for this is a detestable thing. Some translations have it, and it's an abomination. In, verse, uh, in chapter 20, verse 13, it says, If a man lies with a, woman, with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable, or it's an abomination before God, and they must be put to death. However, their blood will be on their own heads. God clearly holds those who practice such behavior accountable and responsible for their actions. It would indicate, and we'll, we'll see a little further as we go through this, it would indicate that there's actually some choice that's being made. And we need to understand that very clearly. But there are those who would argue, well, this is Old Testament. You know, these, these sins were punishable by death, but we, we don't do that anymore. We're, you know, we're under grace now. And uh, they would try to argue that the New Testament doesn't say anything about homosexuality. But then we find in Romans 1, 26 and 27, that homosexuality is not natural. It's an example of degrading passion and worthy of death, according to this particular text. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. 
The Bible clearly teaches that homosexuality, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament, is a sin before God, and it's an act that was punishable. Um, and it says, and they received in themselves. There's a price that's to be paid for sin. Don't, don't be deceived by any of that. And so as we go through it, this will bring us to the final three points. Now, basically, it's more bad news for those, of, those out there who would say that the Bible doesn't have anything negative to say about homosexuality. But there's also some good news, and we'll bring it all to a completion as we take a look at that. But the fourth point that we're going to look at is that homosexuality is one of many sins for which the law was given. And we need to understand that. 1 Timothy 8.10 through 10 says this, We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts. Some texts have homosexuals, some have sodomites, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. You know, there's a point that has to be made at this particular time as we look at this because as human beings, we have a way of trying to um, uh, quantify sin or maybe qualify it or rank it. For some of us, there are certain sins that are big sins and others we would think would be little sins or insignificant sins. Uh, having a Catholic background, I grew up in, in, a, in an environment that there were mortal sins and venial sins. There were the big ones, then there were the other ones. And, uh, you know, everybody did the little ones, but you, you crossed a certain line when you started to do the big ones. And uh, it's important to understand that as we try to, to look at sin, we have a t tendency to rank sin. And the problem is, as we take a look at this, the while the consequences may vary as far as what sin we commit, the Bible clearly teaches that sin is sin. And that sin is sin in the eyes of God, and, and, and anything that sin is in opposition to the character and the holiness of God. And so God has a tendency, and he does, look at sin differently than we do. And the Bible clearly says in this particular passage, it says, We know that the law is good if it's used, if it's used properly. Meaning that God gave the law to give us boundaries that we can identify what right and wrong behavior is. He goes on, if you look at it, the Bible also tells us that the law gives us a knowledge of sin and shows the whole world that we're guilty before God. In Romans 3, 19 and 20, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Probably the best analogy I can think of is the law, as God has revealed it, is like a mirror that we can look into and clearly see what we really are. See, we can't really see what we are. If we don't use a mirror, you can have people tell you what you look like or how your hair looks or whatever. But until you look into a mirror, then you can clearly see who you are. And what the law does is it's a mirror that God gives us that we can look into to see the reflection of who we really are as people. And the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one point, he has become guilty of all of it. And so what God tries to get across and, and, and what he's trying to teach all of us is that the law is used by God to help us understand what right and wrong behavior is. And if you look at this at verse 10, it says, these things are contrary to sound doctrine. These actions, this behavior is in opposition to what God says is right. So the law gives us parameters on how to live. 
See, it's not a matter of whether we choose to believe that those are the parameters or the boundaries. God clearly teaches that he gives the parameters and the boundaries. And the vote of people, or whether we like it or don't like it, do not change the boundaries or the parameters. He says that anything beyond those parameters is contrary to sound teaching. And it's also deceptive. It's a lie. And so those who would say that homosexuality is an alternative and acceptable lifestyle, those who say, I'm a Christian and I'm homosexual, it's contrary to the teaching of God because the law reflects that their behavior is wrong before God, it's outside of those boundaries or parameters, and it's contrary to sound teaching. It is not biblical, biblical teaching. And so we need to understand that. The Bible teaches that the law was designed for sinners, and there's a list of them in this particular passage, and included among this list is what the New King James Version calls sodomites, or we see here perverts or homosexuals, and that basically there would be those who argue that, well, sodomite doesn't mean what we think it means. The problem is the Greek word that's used here is the word that's used for men and for a bed. And it clearly indicates in all of the writings of, of Greek literature and in Scripture, and we'll show you in a minute, that it's referring specifically to men who get in bed to have sex together. That's exactly what's being referred to here. And there's no way you can get around it. So as we look at this, according to the Bible, and this is really important, according to the Bible, homosexuality is not a sickness, nor is it a disease. It's sinful behavior. That's what God calls it. Adultery is sinful, alcoholism is sinful, overeating is sinful, and yet we tend to view all of these things as sicknesses in our culture. They may be compulsive behaviors, but they're still sin. And each person is still responsible for the choices that he or she makes. Not long ago, there was an article that came out in the sports section regarding Daryl Strawberry and his, uh, and his drug addiction. And I like a quote that uh, Tony Gwynn, who plays for the San Diego Padres, had to say. He said, I know this isn't going to be a popular statement today, but I'm going to make it anyway. I know there are many people who talk about Daryl Strawberry, and they talk about his illness or his disease. And he goes, and granted, it may have become an illness, it may have become a disease in his life, but let's never get away from the fact that at some point in Daryl's life, he chose to use drugs. And I say that is one of the, the sharpest statements that I've heard an athlete be quoted as saying in a long time. And he said, I know it's not popular, and he is so right. It is not a popular thing to say. Why? Because he's saying we're responsible for our actions. It may become compulsive. It may become a disease. But there's a point in time that everyone makes a choice as to whether they're going to involve themselves in certain behavior or a certain lifestyle. And what I'm trying to get across here is that homosexuality is no different. The Bible clearly lists it as a sin in which the person who enters into that behavior is held responsible before God. Can it become compulsive? Absolutely. Can it become addictive? Certainly can. Can you get tied up into it and not even realize what's going on? You certainly can. But the point is very clear. That is that, you know, we're so concerned about being politically correct in statements that we water down what the Bible has to say. God calls this behavior sin. I ran across an article the other day I thought it was pretty funny. Just goes to show you how we are as people. You know, we, we never want to just call things the way that they really are. We want to try to clean it up a little bit. 
But this man, D.R. Siegel, writes this. He says, A few weeks ago, I expressed my admiration for the inventiveness, if not the politics, of columnist Molly Evans, who had termed her old friend Ross Perot vertically impaired. Well, that, to be sure, is considerably kinder than, say, stubby or shorty or maybe peewee. But I think I'll have to put Molly in second place for the real champs I discovered recently are Kennard Nelson, doctor, and David Calantano of the Johns Hopkins University School of Hygiene and Public Health. Writing on the subject of HIV, these two scientists have coined the lovely phrase commercial sex worker, which turns out to mean a prostitute. He says a commercial sex worker with HIV might be said to be horizontally impaired, but I guess that's another story. <laughs> he said, I'm not sure a prostitute would gain self-esteem by, getting called a, by being called a commercial sex worker, but even if he or she did, the reader requires a footnote to know what they're talking about. He said Shakespeare didn't use the word prostitute, as I recall in all of my readings of his writings. He used the word whore, but of course, he never wrote about HIV. He dealt with the ordinary, such as clap. Well, <laughs> we're going to talk about that next week when we talk about sexual disease. But the point that he made, I think, is, is very well taken. He says, brevity figures in. He says, the Ten Commandments take up a lot less space than anything of similar importance that I've seen recently. He said, or Sam Spade said, the cheaper the guns, the bigger the gun. Instructions on sharpening a pencil run longer today than the Gettysburg Address. And, you know, he really does make a point. And we try to clean things up. We try to make things sound better than they really are. But in reality, homosexuality, according to the Bible, is one of many sins, sins for which the law was given, which leads to a, a point that kind of ties in here. And uh, the question that some have asked, and I've had conversations with many of you uh, over the last weeks uh, as we've discussed this topic, but we've got to ask a question, what causes homosexuality? I think that's a fair question to ask in light of what we're dealing with because many of us know those who have chosen to, to uh, be involved in homosexual behavior. And there's a debate of what causes it. I think it's important, regretfully, uh, you know, the studies to this point are far from con conclusive, yet I don't think we should ever confuse what is being done, which is the act, with the reason behind why one does it. And uh, give you an example. You know, why would someone commit rape? Why would someone commit incest or child molestation? Why would someone commit bestiality or have sex with an animal? I mean, these are questions that are the talk show type questions that every human being has natural curiosity about. Why would somebody want to do this? And so there's a certain sense of perverted curiosity in trying to understand that. Like the night that uh, one, of the, one of the shows, I forget what it was, had uh, interviewed uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's father. You know, why would a person want to murder somebody and then eat the bodies? See, we're so caught up in why sometimes as a society that we forget to deal with the action itself. You know what I'm saying? We're trying to understand. We want to understand because we want to be open-minded people. We want to be people that are tolerant people. We want to understand. And so there's so much emphasis on why someone does what they do that we forget to deal with the actions that they take and the consequences for their actions and those who are victimized by these actions. Homosexuality, by simple definition, Dr. Paul Gebert says, it's physical contact between ind individuals of the same gender which both recognize as being sexual in nature and which ordinarily results in sexual arousal. 
That's what homosexuality is. It's an act of sexual expression, and that's how the Bible continually treats it. It doesn't, God doesn't begin to explain why we do the things that we do. He's saying that it is a symptom of a deeper problem, and that's a sin nature, and that's what the law is to demonstrate that none of us are right before God. And these are how we manifest the fact that we're not right before God. These are just ways that it's demonstrated throughout society. It's called sin, and here's how sin develops, and here's how sin... You know, so we look at, well, there's theories. Well, is it genetic? Is it hormonal imbalance? Is it voluntary? Does a person constantly, consciously decide to do this? Um, is it a matter of parental background, a dominant mother, a passive father, not a good father-son relationship? All of the things are interesting theories, and all of them have some validity. Is it because of influence in our youth, or, or is it because of contact with uh, pornography? And, and a lot of it has to do with the, all the, the confusion the homosexual, the homosexual community tries to point out. I had a young man give my daughter a questionnaire that was handed out on a college-university campus in Colorado. And this is an unbelievable heterosexual questionnaire. This guy's a Ph.D., so naturally he must know something that we don't know. <laughs> but listen to these questions. What do you think caused your heterosexuality? When and how did you first decide you were heterosexual? If you never slept with a person of the same sex, is it possible that all you need is a good gay lover? Why do heterosexuals feel compelled to seduce others into your lifestyle? Why do you insist on flaunting your heterosexuality? Can't you just be what you are and keep it quiet? A disproportionate majority of child molesters are heterosexuals. Do you consider it safe to expose your children to heterosexual teachers? Considering the menace of overpopulation, how could the human race survive if everyone are heterosexual like you? How can you become a whole person if you limit yourself to compulsive, exclusive heterosexuality and fail to develop your natural, healthy homosexual potential? And here's the last one, and it's really the clincher, and this is what we're all leading to. There seems to be so very few happy heterosexuals. Techniques have been developed to help you change if you really want to. Have you considered aversion therapy? See, this is the kind of confusion, and this is the kind of garbage that is being promoted throughout our country. And I'd like to make a couple of statements about what we can clearly say so that you'll understand and that you'll be informed what, heter what homosexuality is not. Number one, according to the Bible, it is not a genetic result. There's much propaganda to try to portray this as a valid argument. There are many people who would say that homosexuals are born that way. And yet if you listen to their reasoning and their arguments, they talk out of both sides of their mouth. NAMBLA, the National Association of Man, Boy, Love, or whatever association that we talked about recently, whose motto is sex before eight or it's too late, out of one side of their mouth is saying that we need to get kids while they're young so we can influence them into this type of behavior. Out of the other side of their mouth, they say that homosexuals are born this way and they can't help it and they can't, and they can't make choices otherwise. Well, how can you have both sides of the argument? If they're born that way, then what's the sex before eight or it's too late argument all about? Because that's the way they are and that's the way they'll be. You don't need to influence young people. And yet they realize that that's not true. So they talk out of both sides of their mouth, as so many people do when they're trying to justify their sin. And so as we look at this, I think it's important to understand that every... I, 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 would, I would argue that almost every month there's, a, there's an article in the newspaper trying to isolate and identify a gene that causes homosexuality. We see it all the time. 
think it's important to clear the record. Robert Knight of the, of the Family Research Council says this, flawed or misreported science can have enormous political ramifications as shown by the willingness of the popular journals to tout, tout studies that bolster gay activist views while ignoring others that contradict them. The now discredited Kinsey-based myth that 10% of the population is homosexual is a prime example, although there have been numerous studies from many nations indicating that percentages are 2% or less, the 10% myth still lives on. Says he, cite, he also goes on to cite doctors William Bine and Bruce Parsons who examined past and current claims that homosexuality is genetic, and he says this, they have concluded that, quote, there is no evidence at present to substantiate a biologic theory. The appeal of current biological explanations for sexual orientation may derive from dissatisfaction with the present status of psychosocial explanations than from a substantiating body of ex experimental data. You know what he's saying in, in, in a simple words? He's saying, look, they're coming up with, quote, scientific studies because they don't like the ramifications of the fact that if it's not genetic, then it must be a person's choice. So we don't want that to be promoted, so there has to be a reason behind this. There is no reason behind it other than a person chooses to do it. But that's the kind of things that we deal with. I mean, you've heard, how many of you heard someone say that it's genetic and they can't help it, that's just the way they are? We've all heard it, we've all read it, we've all seen it. But the evidence it, it indicates otherwise. Number two, and I think it's important to make this point. Homosexuality is not someone who acts feminine or somebody who acts masculine. I mean, we get people all the time who get all shook up because, you know, their daughter's a tomboy or their son doesn't like sports, and so there must be something wrong with them and what direction are they heading in life and all these types of things. But we need to be very careful to understand that homosexuality is not acting a certain way it is doing a certain thing. And we've got to be very careful about this. I think it's important that as men we raise masculine boys and as women we raise feminine women. And I think we, it's about time we get back to doing that. And there's been so much identity crisis as far as gender is concerned that we don't really know how a boy's supposed to grow up to be a man or a girl's supposed to, be up and, to grow up to be a woman. And the important thing is that the Bible clearly teaches what some of the characteristics are for a man and also for a woman, what we should be doing as parents to teach our children. But it's also important that we don't slam people who act a certain way and categorize them as a homosexual. In fact, most studies indicate that 5% or less of people that are homosexuals fit this particular category. So you can't stereotype people. I've met people that are the, some of the most masculine looking guys that you'd ever see that are homosexuals. I know guys in the NFL that you would never picture for a moment that that was the case, but it is. And that uh, we've got to be very careful about stereotypes. Homosexuality, according to the Bible, is not genetic. It's not a person who acts masculine or acts feminine, but it's also not a third sexual category. You know, the Bible says that God created us male and female. He created them. He created Adam and Eve, and he didn't create Adam and Steve, and that's just the way it is. And uh, we need to understand that. It's time that we isolate what the Bible has to say instead of trying to isolate a gene that doesn't exist. That's really what it's all about. Number five, and here's some more bad news. There's no way you can get around it, but we're going to talk about it. 
Number five, the Bible says that homosexuality is a sin that if it's continued to be practiced leads to eternal condemnation. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, we read this. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I realize that a statement like this isn't going to win any popularity contest with homosexuals who would say that such a statement is judgmental, that such a statement is unloving. But let me ask you a question, and you need to wrestle with this as I do. If the Bible is truth, and what God says is true, isn't it more unloving not to be faithful to the truth than to give that person an opportunity to hear the truth and respond accordingly? What is more unloving? I'll give you an illustration I thought about. Let's say you go into the doctor's office and you go in for a checkup. The doctor discovers that this tumor that you have is cancerous. Now, this doctor knows, as this doctor always has found out, that that's not good news to give to a patient. So he's struggling now with, well, do I want to, you're not going to want to hear this. So I don't think I'm going to tell you. But see, if he told you, there could be some actions that you could take, as painful as they may be, but there could be some actions that you take that could maybe change the end result. But he doesn't tell you. Wouldn't that be the most unloving thing that he could do? Think about this. That would be, that would be a terrible tragedy. For that, See, if, if I have cancer and I'm going to die, I want to know the truth so that at least it's my decision on what happens to me what treatment that we take, what course of action that we go through, uh, the direction that we... I want to have, have some kind of input into the final result. Wouldn't you? How can anybody say the most unloving thing that a person could do is to tell a homosexual that if they continue to live a life of homosexuality without any conviction about it being wrong, without any remorse, without confessing it before God, that it's a sin before God, and without repentance and turning from that action, how can anybody say that it's unloving to confront a person with the truth as if, as if what God says is true and that person dies and goes to hell for all of eternity? What's more unloving? Let them keep doing what they're doing? See, this is a problem that we have in our society. Oh, this is unloving. Give me a quote. Here's a great example. Here's the, here's the article. Gay church leader urges faith in the face of hatred. April 11th. Here's the headline. Don't tell the Reverend Mel White that you love the sinner but hate the sin of homosexuality. The former ghostwriter for evangelist Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, and Billy Graham, he won't believe you. If it were true, this is a quote, if it were true that they loved the sinner, then they would meet with the sinner and show compassion and understanding for them. And they would keep in mind that Jesus didn't say one word about homosexuality. Jesus simply asked that we love one another. That is tragic. That is tragic. Because my question for him would be, who do you say Jesus is? Is Jesus the Son of God? Is Jesus God? What is the Bible? Is the Bible the Word of God? If Jesus is God and the Bible is the Word of God, wouldn't everything that's written in the Word of God reflect the character of Christ? From Genesis to Revelation? 
How foolish it is to say that the red print in our, in our Gospels, Jesus never mentions homosexuality. By the same argument, he never mentions rape or incest either. Never mentions bestiality. He never mentions a lot of things. He never mentions watching you know, too much TV or playing Nintendo too much. I mean, but there are guidelines and there's principles that are mentioned all throughout the Word of God that reflect the character of Christ. That's a foolish argument. And if you love a person, wouldn't you confront them with the truth if you know that it's the truth that will set them free? Wouldn't it be the most loving thing to do to confront a person and say, and the way that we do it is certainly critical and the way that we do it is certainly important, but the truth is still the truth no matter how you try to package it. The reality of all of it is, is that the Bible clearly teaches that homosexuality is a sin that if continued to be practiced leads to eternal condemnation. And I like what God has to say. Don't be deceived by this. This is contrary to sound doctrine. It's deceptive teaching. It's a lie from the pit of hell. And it's what Satan specialized in because he's the father of lies. And there are those in the homosexual community that are like this gentleman here who claims to be religious and knows what God has to say about subjects and distorts and manipulates it to make people feel better about the behavior that they're committing rather than to confront them with the truth. This guy doesn't want to hear the truth either. Why? Because he left his wife, he left his kids, and he made a choice to live in a lifestyle that God clearly condemns and says that it's sin before God. What's he going to say? The only other thing he can say is, I'm sinning, and I know it, and this is what I choose to do. But he doesn't want to do that. Because what's going to happen to all the people who follow him? I say, no, this isn't sin. Don't call it a sin. Call it something else. Call it genetic. Call it something else. But don't call it a choice that I made. Because if I chose wrong, this choice has eternal consequences. Wow. Now for the good news. The Bible clearly teaches that homosexuality is a behavior. It's a choice that is made that can be stopped. Following up to this 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, we read this in verse 11. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away and new things have come. You see, the Bible clearly teaches that God can produce a moral change within the human heart so that previous sinful lifestyles can be forgiven, they can be cleansed, and they can be changed. We need to understand this, and this is so important. There's this big debate in Christian colleges today, and I need to share it with you, because basically what's happening is that so many Christian schools, so many seminaries are retreating from a high view of Scripture. Here's a gentleman, Lewis Smeeds, who's a professor of theology at Fuller Theological Seminary. In 1976, he wrote a book entitled Sex for Christians. Listen to what this man who has a doctorate has to say. In referring to homosexuality, he discusses a concept he calls creative compassion for the homosexual who suffers from constitutional homosexuality. This, according to Smeeds, is the homosexual who, although responsible for his choices and having gone through therapy, finds that he simply cannot change. The emphasis on cannot is pivotal because he goes on to say this, within his, the homosexual who cannot change, a sexual experience, he ought to develop a permanent association with another person. Associations in which respect and regard for the other person dominates their sexual relationship. 
develop a morality for the homosexual life is not to accept homosexual practices as morally commendable. It is, however, to recognize that the optimum moral life within a deplorable situation is preferable to a life of sexual chaos. Can I put this into English for you? Thank you. You know what he says? He's saying that if you're going to be a homosexual, then restrict it to one partner that you'll be faithful to. It's a deplorable situation. I'm not saying that it's the right choice, but at least it's not sexual chaos. He's saying if you're going to have an affair, then just keep it confined to one other person. If you're going to rape somebody, just rape one person. If you're going to have incest, just choose one person. And don't do it all to a whole bunch of people. If you're going to molest somebody, just choose one person. This is a guy who has a doctorate that teaches at a seminary at a Christian school. He's saying if you're going to sin, then sin right. That's what he's saying. Do it right. If you're going to be homosexual, have a life partner. That's, the, that's the, the political correct term. Mel White is pictured in the Orange County Register. Here's what it says. Oh, he now leads the largest gay church in the United States. 1,200 people. How, how, how big can this be when you stop and think about it? But uh, it's the largest church in the world. And here's what at left is his life partner. Oh, there's the little words that we're looking for. See, we're not the homosexuals that average 87 partners a year. We have life partners. We're committed. We're faithful. You are? What happened to your wife and your kids? And how long is this life partnership going to last? And even if you are faithful to one person, it's still sin. Golly moly, what in the world? I guess, I mean, I'm glad I don't have a doctorate. I think... It's like, what's, do I mean, it's like D, dumber. I mean, you know, it's like the dumber you get. It's like, can you read and understand this? This is so simple to understand. And yet we try to confuse it with all these big terms and big words and stuff like this. Let me tell you something. Homosexuality is a sin. It's a symptom of a deeper problem, and it's called sin nature. It's sin condition. And as a society, we cannot continue to deal with the symptom without dealing with the root. And the root is very simple, that we need a new nature, not something new and improved. The Bible says that when you know Jesus Christ, he changes your life. It's a new life, not a new and improved life. It's new. It starts fresh. It starts over. It starts at a new beginning. That's what the Bible teaches, and that God can bring about a moral change in any person's heart that turns to Christ. It's important that we understand this. There's study after study, and the interesting thing is, I, I can read them and go on, but I'm running out of time, but there are psychologists and psychoanalysts who, who are outside of the realm of the church who say that in every case where a person chooses to want to change their behavior, they have absolute 100% success. Even outside of spiritual change, they have success with a person that says, I want to change this behavior in my life. There's success. And the irony of all of it is that we got men of God who stand in pulpits or stand at, at lecterns and seminaries who say that we can't be changed. And since you can't be changed, then try to sin right. When the rest of the world saying you can be changed if you really want to be changed. How stupid are we? And these are, our kids are growing up and they're listening to stuff like this. I can't change. This is the way I am. Well, you know what? Well, the way you am is the, way, is the reason Jesus died for the way you am. And if you turn to Christ, he'll change the way you am and he'll make you into something that he wants you to be.
Man, I mean, that's really what it's all about. We've been washed. We've been cleansed from sin. We've been cleansed from our past. We've been sanctified or set apart as a child of God to do the will of God, to obey his commandments. And I'd have to ask Mel White and any other person who, who is an advocate of any kind of sinful lifestyle, if you love God, then you obey his commandments. And if you love another human being more than you love God, then that's sin. Whether it's adultery or homosexuality or sex outside of marriage for singles, when another person gets into your life that causes you to disobey the commandments of God, then you no longer love God first, but you put that person first, and God takes a back seat, and that's just the way that it is. That's why the commandments of God are in this order, that you love God first. And if you love God first, then you'll love man the way God intended us for to, to love one another. And it can't work in reverse. I've got several examples, wonderful examples, of men and women who have come out of homosexual lifestyle that have been changed by God. I could read story after story, and they're wonderful stories about men and women. Here's one, here's one guy, here's one lady that was a lesbian for 12 years. She's now married, she has two children, and she talks about how Jesus Christ changed her life. Here's another, another gal here who's a single gal now, but she was a lesbian for five years. Here's a guy who was, a, was a, a homosexual for four and a half years. He's now been married 15 years and has five kids. Jesus changes lives. And don't believe the lie that he doesn't because that's what he specializes in. And such were some of you. And it's just not the sin of homosexuality, but it's any other sin. Well, let me, let me wrap this all together because I, I want to share some things that I believe that we can do that are action steps. I like the story. This one old guy you go out fishing all the time. This guy kept bringing back fish when no one else would bring back fish. And everybody at the dock at the way station couldn't figure out how in the world this guy kept bringing fish back when everybody else would go out and they weren't getting any fish. So the game warden said, hey, I'd like to go out with you for a day and just see what your tricks are and what your techniques are. He said, oh, sure, young fella, come on with me. And he goes out in the boat. And they get out there and there's no one else around. And all of a sudden, the guy reaches in his, in his tackle box and he pulls out a stick of dynamite. Lights it up, drops in the water, boom, it goes, and all these fish start floating to the surface, you know, and he starts picking them up, putting them in his thing, and this game warden's going nuts. So what in the world are you doing? How can you do something like this? What's wrong with you? I mean, I can't believe, you know how dangerous this is? This is against law. What do you think you're doing? And the old man looked at him a second, let a piece of dynamite hand it to him and said, now what are you going to do? Are you going to sit here all day and complain or are you going to start the fish? <laughs> and you know, a lot of times that's what we're all about, you know. We just like to sit around and complain and none of us want to fish. Well, it's time that we start the fish. Let me give you some suggestions. Here we go. Number one, always refer to homosexuality as well as any other sin that the Bible clearly points out as sin as sin and not an illness and not a sickness. We are responsible for our choices. Number two, understand that homosexuality is a learned behavior. It's not a result of some genetic process or some genetic mutation or anything like that. It's a learned behavior and we're held accountable before God for it. Never consider gay rights as civil rights. Also, I want, to, I want to make this point very clear. It is a sin against God to hate any other person that's living in sin. There's never a time and there's never a tolerance for violence against anybody that's doing something that's wrong before God. There should only be compassion and love. There should be prayer. But we should also confront them with the truth because it's the truth, the word of God that will set people free. Don't you ever condemn another person for what they're doing, whether they're committing adultery or homosexuality or any other sin before God that's a sexual sin. God, help us to understand we should never, as God's people, tolerate violence toward any other human being. 
but we should pray for them, we should confront them with love, but we need to confront them with the truth because that's the only thing that's going to give them a chance to respond appropriately before God. Don't tolerate the approval or promotion of homosexual acts or lifestyles, especially in sex education classes of our public schools. And what I would suggest that you do if you're not articulate and you cannot articulate the position and you get all caught up in a public group or public setting and, and you know, public speaking isn't what you want to do, then write this phone number down. I talked to this gentleman this week. They've got a videotape called The Gay Agenda. It's 20 minutes long, 18 bucks, including handling and freight or whatever postage, and they'll mail it to you. Phone number is 805-940-4700. And all you got to do is take it to your school board and show them it and say, here, you watch this and you tell me if you think it's something appropriate for our children to watch or to view or to promote as a lifestyle. 805-940-4700. We need to be careful to use our voting rights to exercise them, to take responsibility to fight initiatives and agendas that seek community, state, national approval and acceptance of homosexual lifestyle. And I would also say find out where that person stands that you're going to vote for on the homosexual agenda. For it or against it. You're for it, I'm not for you. That's all there is to it. It's real simple. Never believe that sexual preference should be added to our understanding or application of human rights. Don't discriminate against homosexuals in terms of rights to which all Americans are entitled. Teach your children what the Bible has to say about sexual matters. Warn them of sexual sins, including the sin of homosexuality. Don't treat homosexuality as more terrible sin than adultery among heterosexuals. We got this double standard that we got to be real careful. Sin is sin in the eyes of God. And I would say encourage homosexuals to accept God's love and Christ's forgiveness. Because God wants to change the hearts of all of us. If you need help, here's a couple phone numbers. If you've got a family member who is a homosexual and you need help in dealing with it and understanding it and try to, to, uh, to be, you know, somehow of a benefit in the situation, there's a ministry in, in La Habra called Spatula Ministries. P.O. Box 444, La Habra, California. Write to them. They'll send you information. They'll send you anything that you need to help you dealing with someone that you love that's a homosexual. Zip is 90631. If you know a homosexual that wants help in leaving a homosexual lifestyle, there's a ministry in L.A. called Desert Stream. And their phone number is, for those of you who are interested, 310-572-0140. I mean, there are people that can help and the people that want to help. You know what? And it really boils down to this. Make sure you're not a hypocrite. In every area of life, make sure you're not a hypocrite. The easiest thing to do is point a finger at another person's sin and what they're doing and what they're struggling with while you're doing something different in another corner of the world that God knows and he sees our hearts and he knows exactly what we're all about. How can we put our, point our finger at someone who's struggling with homosexuality when we've got this little hidden area of our life that we're struggling with? See, what Satan, do, Satan will do is he'll neutralize us and say, hey, wait a minute, who are you to open your mouth and say something? You can't be saying something to them while you're doing this. So I guess I, I don't think you should say anything. And that's really what it boils down to. If we are going to be moral agents for change in our world, then we have to be people who love the Word of God and are obedient to it in every area of our life. See, what you struggle in, and you can't change, so to speak, God wants to change that area of your life. 
And it's no different than a person's a homosexual that says they can't change either. God wants to change that too because it's real clear what the Bible has to say. Listen to this quote in closing. There was a young man in Seattle who was a sex offender who was guilty of murder. And he was being executed. His last name is Dodd. And I I didn't get his first name from the article. But the witnesses complained that Dodd's last words were difficult to make out because of the problems with the prison's microphone system. As a group, media witnesses recreated what they believe Dodd's last words were. Quote, I was once asked by somebody, and I don't remember who, if there was any way sex offenders could be stopped. I said, no, but I was wrong. I was wrong when I said there was no hope and that there was no peace. For there is hope and there is peace. I have found both in the Lord Jesus Christ. I urge everyone, look to the Lord and you will find peace. And that was a man who was sitting on the electric chair in the state of Washington right before they pulled the plug. And the only peace you can get in a situation like that is the peace of God which surpasses all understanding and guards your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to take this look at this sin of homosexuality according to what the Bible teaches. God, help us to see that it is sin like all sin and that it is... It is just totally contrary to the character of you. God, help us as, as people to confess our sins before you, to realize that you'll cleanse us from us, you'll forgive us as we repent and turn from it. God, just we thank you for the strength that you give us, and we thank you for the, the, the cleansing that we found in our relationship with Jesus Christ. God, I also pray that the men of this, uh, of this group would be motivated to become men of God as Joshua was, who said, for this day forward, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God, help us to be role models and examples as men, to fight the moral decay of our country. God, help us to confess how we've contributed to it before you and ask for cleansing from it and ask for strength as we're called into battle to fight the battle that you've called us to. God, I just pray that many will be motivated to go to Promise Keepers and get involved in men's ministry and get involved in in all the areas that, that we as men can learn and grow. And we just look forward to what you'll do with the availability and the willingness of just a handful of people to fight in your army. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Don't leave.